Corinthians 6. From Genesis 1, we read the verses 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Read from Genesis 2, the verses 4 to 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." And finally, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, the verses 9 to 20. And the verses 12 to 20 are the text for this afternoon's sermon. One Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's our reading from God's holy word. Let's rise and sing from Psalm 8, the verses 3, 4, and 5. We sing here about the wondrous way in which God created man. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in our Western culture today, uh, people have a real love-hate relationship with their bodies. On the one hand, we see people placing a ridiculously high value on appearance. People want to look good, 
and will go to great lengths to present themselves in the best possible light. And so we see a widespread obsession with diets, exercise, bodybuilding, cosmetics, stylish clothing, plastic surgery, Botox treatments, and so on. Social media is full of photoshopped images of people that set unrealistic standards for physical beauty. Popular models will have hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers on Instagram and other social media accounts. Yet being obsessed by the body does not mean that we love or accept it or value it. The focus on looking young and beautiful, the worship of the airbrushed, media-produced glamour shots hides a hatred of our real bodies. An obsession with exercising and dieting shows that people are objectifying the body as something to be used and controlled instead of valuing it for its own sake. We live in a day and age when when most people look in the mirror, they hate what they see. Our culture has lost Christianity's wholesome perspective on human life. People separate personhood from human life. We see that in many of the issues that confront us today. The body that grows in his mother's womb is not considered a person unless the mother decides to have a baby. Someone suffering from dementia is no longer considered to be a person and society deems it acceptable to end her life. This also applies to our sexuality. Since society views the body as separate from the person, what you do with your body sexually need not have any connection with who you really are. In the hookup culture of our day, sex is considered purely physical, separate from love. Transgender people often claim to be trapped in the wrong body. As Christians, our thinking can easily be affected by the culture in which we live. We can start to take on the attitudes and the perspectives of all those around us. And so this afternoon, we're going to spend some time examining who we are. What does it mean to be human? Or to ask the question in another way. What is it that makes you a person? Is it your personality, your life force, your thinking that makes you a human being? Can you be a human being without a body? From the Bible's perspective, how are we supposed to look at our bodies? Does this have any impact on our morality? Does it affect our viewpoint on issues like abortion, euthanasia, sexuality, and gender? 
I'd like to summarize the gospel message for you this afternoon under the following theme. Paul urges us to glorify God with our bodies. We'll see how Paul exposes society's wrong view on our bodies, explains how we are to view our bodies, and exhorts us to glorify God with our bodies. In the time when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, society had a different perspective on life than we do as 21st century Christians. The Iranian prophet Mani developed a religion which spread through much of the world, which was the main rival of Christianity before the spread of Islam. Manichaeism sees life as a struggle between the good, the spiritual world of light, and the evil, the material world of darkness. Please note that the material world, including our bodies, was viewed in a negative light. Closely associated with this is Gnosticism. It also promoted the idea that all matter is evil, that only the spiritual realm is good. According to this belief, the essential part of what makes us human is the divine spark, which according to them was trapped in a human body. Gnostics believed that our mortal bodies belong to the inferior material world, that only our spirits or our souls could be saved. Thus, the average person living in Paul's day saw the body as a total other to the self. It was a piece of matter that the soul had to struggle to control and manage. The goal of salvation was to escape the material world, to leave it behind, to ascend back into the spiritual realm. This led to a number of extremes in how people lived their lives. The one extreme is what we call asceticism. People would abstain from bodily pleasures for the purpose of pursuing a spiritual goal. They'd live frugal lives, getting rid of their material possessions so they could focus on their spiritual quest. They would deny themselves food. They would refrain from engaging in sex even if they were married. Paul addresses this issue in Colossians 2, where he summarizes the teaching of such people as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says that this teaching has an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but that it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's also another extreme to seeing the material world as evil and unimportant. We see it coming through in our text in the verses 12 and 13. In these verses, Paul quotes two slogans that the believers in the church of Corinth used to explain their sinful lifestyle. A slogan is a short saying that summarizes what we believe about a certain matter. Lots of people in our society live by slogans. If it feels good, do it. Or, it's all right as long as no one gets hurt. Similarly, in Paul's day, people lived by these two slogans. All things are lawful for me. And food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The saying, all things are lawful for me, 
may have been something that the church derived from Paul's teachings. Paul had to oppose the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers who said it was necessary for Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to obey the food laws of the Old Testament. Paul opposed this teaching, stressing our freedom in Christ. But it appears that the Corinthian believers took that statement too far. They applied it to life in the wrong way. Some of them adopted the attitude, we're free in Christ. All things are lawful for us. It doesn't matter how we live our lives in our mortal bodies. They applied that to their sexuality and thought that they were free to engage in sex with temple prostitutes. This attitude comes out even more directly in the second slogan they promoted. They said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now with this slogan they were not trying to defend their eating habits. Their reasoning went as follows. Since food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, and since all bodily appetites are pretty much alike, it means the body is for sex and sex is for the body. They figured that sexual acts are merely gratifying a bodily appetite, nothing more. In this way, the Corinthians justified their participation in the sexual immorality of their city. Now to us, that seems like a really weak argument like a grasping at straws. We can hardly believe the Corinthian believers were serious in presenting this as an excuse for their immorality. You need to understand that there was something else that influenced their perspectives on sexuality. They didn't look at their bodies in the same way as we do today. In the time of the Greeks, people made a profound distinction between body and soul. The soul was all important it was pure. It was eternal. The body was seen as a mere vessel in which your soul lived. The body was considered evil. It was unimportant because it would just die and turn back to dust again. This dualism perverted the Corinthians' perspectives on their bodies. The body's just a suitcase in which the soul lived. They couldn't see the big deal in keeping their bodies pure and holy. In Christ, we're free from our sins. When we die, our soul will go up to be with Him. Our bodies are just temporary homes for our souls. So really, what's, what's wrong with visiting a prostitute? The Corinthians' negative perspective on their bodies as evil and unimportant opened the way for them to think it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. Many in our society have a similar attitude toward their bodies today. Their personhood is found in their personality, in their intellect, in their thinking. Having a human body does not qualify you for life. We see this in the abortion debate. It used to be that those in favor of abortion denied that a preborn baby is human. They said it's just a blob of tissue, a collection of cells. Yet imaging technology has shown that within eight weeks of conception, 
A baby has a beating heart. That by the end of the third month, a baby is fully formed. Most abortion advocates will admit that this is true. So why isn't this taken as conclusive proof that abortion is wrong? That it is the taking of a human life? Those who recognize what they call the fetus as biologically human do not necessarily conclude it has a moral standing or that it should be legally protected. In their worldview, being a member of the human race is not enough to qualify for personhood. According to them, the baby in the womb has to earn the status of personhood by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. The baby needs to have a capacity for consciousness. It needs self-awareness and autonomy. Now, beloved, for us as Christians, that makes no sense. But our culture makes a distinction between being a human being and being a worthwhile person. We see that argument come into focus in the debates about euthanasia. Many countries in the Western world, including Canada, have passed doctor-assisted suicide laws. It's because people don't see any basic value in human life. The attitude is, if someone has dementia, they're not a real person anyway. You may as well put them to sleep. There is a separation between your personality, your intellect, what makes you, you, and what people see as your physical existence. When it comes down to it, our society has a very negative perspective on the human body. It is unimportant, except as a means of sustaining life. Society's negative view on our bodies comes through in its approach to sexuality. Since your body is separate from who you are as a person, what you do with your body need not have any connection with who you are as a whole person. And thus in the world, people consider that sex can be purely physical, separate from love. In our hookup culture, partners are referred to as friends with benefits. But that's just a cover for what really happens. People who hook up are not really friends. They never meet just to talk or to spend time together. They just get together for sex. In our text, Paul combats the Corinthians' wrong perspectives. They said, all things are lawful for me. Paul suggested that while certain things are lawful, not all things are helpful. While the Corinthians thought that their sexual sins didn't matter because they just involved their evil bodies, Paul teaches that they were dead wrong. No sin that a person commits has more harmful effects than sexual sin. It's broken apart many marriages and shattered many homes. Paul's second point is that sexual sins hold a lot more power in the Corinthian believers' lives than they imagined. He said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sin 
has a certain addictive quality. We may think that we're in control when we engage in certain sins, but often that's not true. The sin controls us. We are under its dominion. Satan has used the desires of our flesh to gain mastery over us. Think about the power of pornography in the lives of many people today. It rewrites the brains of those who indulge in it. And because we're pleasure-seeking people, sexual sins can take control over our lives. Sin enslaves people. We keep looking to have our desires gratified, but we never end up finding what we're really looking for. At some level, people in our society know this. While people want to separate sex from feelings, they cannot. In verses 15 and 16 of our text, Paul makes clear that sex involves more than just a bodily interaction. He asks, Do you not know that he who who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it's written, the two will become one flesh. When people have sex together, they're joined on more than just a physical level. Sex involves a sharing of who you are, also on an emotional and spiritual level. In our society, a lot of work has been done on the trauma children experience when they're sexually abused. Secular literature calls it soul-destroying. The trauma that children and young people experience often has lifelong consequences. And so we see the body is not unimportant. What we do with it is not without consequences. Brings us to our second point, in it we see how Paul explains how we are to view our bodies. To understand who we are, we need to go back to creation. Genesis 1 tells us something important about who we are. It says that God created man in his own image. This doesn't mean that we physically look like God, for God himself is spirit. He does not have a material being. Being created in God's image means we reflect who He is. Just as God is good and righteous and holy, so He created man good and righteous and holy. We were created as moral beings, knowing the difference between right and wrong, and called to live our lives to God's glory. We also read together from Genesis 2 about how God created man. It says, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. This text tells us something really important about who we are. God created us with bodies and souls. God didn't have to do that. God could have chosen to make us like the angels as spirits without bodies. He could have created a spiritual realm for man to float around in. But God created us with material bodies. He gave us a material world to live in. 
The interesting thing is that when God evaluated his creative work, he said, it is very good. Our bodies are not intrinsically evil. They're not something to be despised or hated. You see, beloved, we were created as whole people. God created us with a body and a soul. He created us with purpose. God gave us eyes so we can see. He created us with ears so we could hear. He gave birds wings so they could fly. He gave fish fins so they could swim. These things show that God made us in a specific manner so that we could accomplish the purpose or goal for which he made us. And what is that purpose? Well, unlike the other creatures, God created us with a mind. So we might have a true and wholesome knowledge of God, our creator, and of all spiritual things. God created us with affections so we might love him and live in unity with him. He created man with a free will so we had the ability to choose for God, to live our lives to his glory. We were created with a body and a soul to live in this material world, loving God and serving him by ruling over the rest of his creation. We know that mankind fell into sin and brought God's curse upon ourselves in this world. Man's human nature became corrupt. By nature, we're inclined to sin and evil. The world itself was subjected to futility. Part of God's curse on our sin was that this world brought forth thorns and thistles, that man would have to work in the sweat of his brow, that women would have pain in childbirth. We're confronted with many of the effects of sin, natural disasters, sickness, pain, and ultimately, death. Yeah, beloved, while well, the, well, the fall into sin had a massive effect on how we live, it didn't change our humanity. We're still created with a body and a soul. There is a wholeness to our being. We still image God. Scripture teaches us about the close unity of body and soul. In Psalm 63, David says to God, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. What David is expressing is that he longs for God with his whole being body and soul. The idea that we're whole people is confirmed by everyday experience. When you eat food, you don't say, my mouth is eating. You say, I'm eating. You see, we cannot separate body from soul. Your material being affects you emotionally and spiritually. To overcome the effects of the fall into sin, God needed to redeem us. And he did so in a very special way. God sent his son, who like him was a spiritual being, into this world. And God did so in a very specific manner. Jesus came in human flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary as a real living human being. Christ's coming in human flesh was a physical event happening at a particular time 
in a particular geographical location. John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the days of the early church, this was one of Christianity's greatest scandals. In Manichaeism and Gnosticism, the highest gods would have nothing to do with the material world. Yet the gospel says that immortal and invisible God has broken into human history as a baby boy born in Bethlehem. The apostles stressed Christ's body, that in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we may be made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When Jesus was sacrificed on a cross, we might say that he escaped from this material world. That's what many of the philosophers and teachers of Paul's day taught the people they would do. But what happened? Jesus came back in a bodily resurrection. This was mind-blowing to the Greek philosophers. They thought that as man progressed from this life to the next, he would leave behind his evil material body. But Christ rose from the dead as a human being. When he ascended into heaven, he did so with a glorified human body. In verse 14 of our text, Paul writes, And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. When we die, we know our body is buried in the ground and our soul is taken up to heaven. But, beloved, that's not the end. The Bible makes it clear that on the final day, our bodies will be raised from the dead. They'll be reunited with our souls. We'll live with God on new heavens and a new earth. Just as Christ's human nature is permanently united to his divine nature, so we will also exist forevermore as people with a body and a soul. Job confessed that just before he thought he was going to die. He said, and after my, sin, my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Beloved, we should not buy into our culture's mentality that the body is evil or that what you do with your body is unimportant. God created us as material beings. We're not just created with a spirit or soul. We're created with a body and a soul. God made us male and female in his image. Now, while it's true that sin has distorted who we are, Part of being human is having a physical body. While we may experience much brokenness in the sinful world, our core identity involves having both a body and a soul. You cannot separate personhood from your humanity. 
You don't earn a certain status of being a person by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. A baby in the womb and a senior with severe dementia are real people, even if they're not self-aware or don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And beloved, what we do with our bodies is also very important. No, we're not to worship our bodies. Society's obsession with body image is wrong. But we are to be good stewards of our bodies, to take care of them by eating nutritious food, by getting exercise and regular sleep. Further, we need to recognize that we can use our bodies to sin, or we can use them as instruments of righteousness. We'll deal with this in our final point, and we'll see how Paul exhorts us to glorify God with our bodies. Corinthians thought that since the body was evil, that it was subject to death and decay. didn't matter what you did with it. People today think that they can hook up for sex without any consequences on who they are as people. Paul strongly opposes this in verse 18 of our text. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The point is not that sexual sins are worse than other sins. Yet sexual sins affect us very personally. Sex involves our whole body, our whole person, body and soul. Sex with someone binds you together in a very intimate way. Not only can it give much pleasure, it also gives feelings of being connected and of being loved. The Bible teaches a beautiful message about our sexuality. The most complete and intimate physical union of a man and woman is meant to express. The most complete and intimate union of marriage. The purpose of sex is to express the one flesh covenant bond of marriage. People can and they do have sex outside of marriage all the time. But to stop from getting hurt, they need to divorce their physical union from any kind of emotional or spiritual bond. Engaging in that kind of sex is participating in the I hate my body cult of modern society. Paul concludes our text by reminding us of who we are in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christ has a unique claim on our lives. He says that we were bought with a price. Formerly, we were under the dominion of Satan and our own sinful flesh. But Christ has redeemed us. He paid the price to set us free from our sins. He did that by entering this world as a real human being, by offering up his body and blood for us 
on the cross. Christ's claim on us is strengthened by the fact that he has sent his spirit to live in us. In the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people by living in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Yet with the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come to live in each of our hearts. As Paul says in our text, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. As our body is not just a suitcase, we temporarily inhabit on our way to everlasting life. Beloved, our bodies are holy ground. The Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us pure and holy in God's sight. We belong with body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We owe Him a great debt of gratitude for redeeming us from our sins, for making us righteous and holy in His sight. Do you know how God wants us to show forth our thankfulness? Paul tells us plainly. He says, glorify God in your body. To do that, beloved, we need to love our bodies. We may not always like what we see when we look in the mirror. We may experience much brokenness in this fallen world. Yet each one of us needs to accept I am a unique person created in the image of God that I may live my life to His glory. Beloved, you were created by God, redeemed by Christ, and are being renewed by the Spirit so that you can accomplish the goal, the purpose of your life. It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You ever stop to consider your perspective on who you are? You sometimes pause in the business of life to think about why you do things the way you do. God is at work in us so that instead of using our bodies as instruments of sin, we might offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices of thankfulness to Him. The final goal and purpose of our lives is to glorify God. By His grace and Spirit, He will enable us to do that in this life and perfectly in the life to come. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing together from hymn 64, but our only comfort in life and death. <laughs> 